0: Stephen Harper is a historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has served as an editor of the Joseph Smith Papers. And just with that very short introduction, I'm going to turn all the rest of the time over to him. So with that, Stephen Harper. Thank you. Uh, This will be familiar to you. These are the volumes of what we call Joseph Smith's Manuscript History. Uh, Bunch of you have these on your shelf. Maybe the blue hardback covers that my grandfathers had and my parents inherited. I have a gray paperback copy of them on my shelf, which is where they spend about 99.9% of their time. Uh, a bunch of you have these books on your shelf B.H. Roberts' Comprehensive History of the Church, published in 1930. A fantastic history, um, remarkable undertaking. As I read it today, I can't imagine uh, as one person pulling off what uh, Elder Roberts was able to accomplish there. I can't imagine what pulling off the manuscript history, even with the team of people over two decades that Joseph Smith had and those who followed him had, but um, even in a group like this, a self-selecting group of people who are intensely interested in church history, very few of us read these books. And even fewer of the next generation of Latter-day Saints read these books. And um, why is that? One reason is because they are exposition. They're not story. They're not linear. They don't feel like a roller coaster ride. And they don't resonate very much with present problems or concerns. Elder Ballard taught a couple of years ago, the rising generation needs to know, understand, embrace, and participate in God's plan of salvation. Understanding the plan will give them the divine insight, he said, through which to view themselves as sons and daughters of God, which provides a lens to understand almost every doctrine, practice, and policy of the church. Psychologists have verified what we all know, what everyone has always known intuitively, and that is that we need stories. Stories teach us who we are, and they teach us whose we are. Stories show us where we belong. If you don't have a story, then you don't have an identity. You don't know who you are. You don't know why you exist. You lose your path, your way. The plan of salvation is the greatest story ever told. I I believe, in fact, that it's the archetype for all stories. Narrative theory teaches us that to have a story you need a character who is opposed by forces of antagonism both internal and external, who must make hard choices and who must experience the consequences of their choices and who must as a result undergo some fundamental change. So stories typically begin with a major event or a decision that launches the protagonist on some kind of quest or journey. And they leave their comfort zone and experience peril, opposition, trial and error. They learn some key truth along the way that becomes the key to completing their quest. And then they arrive back where they started, only fundamentally changed. Does that sound familiar? You can see why I say that a plan of salvation is the greatest story and why, in many ways, it's the archetype for all stories. We need a past that's meaningful in the present. It doesn't matter if those volumes of histories are sitting on anyone's shelves or uh, present as the manuscript history is on the website, josephsmithpapers.org. No matter how accessible they are in that sense, if they're not being read and digested by the next generation of Latter-day Saints, they're not getting the job done of giving us a story. So 10 years ago, the prophets and seers, knowing what Doctrine and Covenants section 69 says about keeping a church history continually for the good of the church and for the rising generations, uh, tasked the church history department with coming up with a new plan. On June 18, 2008, uh, that first communication came to the Church History Department. In November of that year, the First Presidency approved Elder Marlon Jensen's, who was then the Church Historian Recorder, proposal to form a committee to begin the process of determining the best way to undertake the writing of a new comprehensive history of the Church. Elder Jensen subsequently organized a committee of men and women, And a subcommittee of that committee came up with a proposal to not write a new comprehensive history of the church or update the old one, but rather to write a brand new four-volume representative history of Latter-day Saints instead of a comprehensive history of the institutional church. The main theme of this new history would be the saints' quest to enjoy the blessings of exaltation by making and keeping temple covenants. And each volume would culminate in some historically important theme-related landmark. For example, volume 1 would end when thousands of saints receive endowment and sealing ordinances in the Nauvoo Temple in 1846. Volume 2, when the saints dedicate the Salt Lake Temple and begin to make covenants in it in 1893. Volume 3 When the Saints Dedicate the Swiss Temple and Begin to Make Covenants There in 1955, and Volume 4, Sometime in the Recent Past, When Temples Dot the Earth, including in remote and far-flung regions, and more people than ever make and keep the covenants of the restored gospel as it spreads uh, farther and farther across the earth. On February 2nd, 2010, the First Presidency gave the commission to move forward. From the very beginning of this project, there was an inspired vision of what it could be. It would be inclusive and creative and transparent and powerful, sacred and truthful and edifying and fortifying and good in every sense. We believe that it would reach saints all across the globe and that it would reshape our collective memory to make it more resilient and more fortifying and more accurate. But um, let me advance the slide. There were some preliminary outlines drafted and some plans But not really very much happened until Elder Snow, Stephen E. Snow, who's now the church historian and recorder, said that he would be giving this history to his grandchildren for Christmas in 2019, (laughs) by which he meant, get it done. And so we went to work on it in earnest. Richard E. Turley Jr., who's now the managing director of the church's public affairs, but who was then an assistant church historian and recorder and the primary visionary uh, uh, for this project, he forewarned me about the six steps in the creative process. Step one is this is awesome. Step two, this is tricky. Step three, this is garbage. Step four, I am garbage. <laughs> Step five, this might work out, okay. Step six, this is awesome. Okay. So what I'm going to tell you now is sort of a, a little bit about the journey through those six steps. And by the way, we're back at six. Uh, volume one just came, began to come off the press. It'll be available to everybody on September 4th. The first six chapters are online at saints.lds.org and in the church magazines. So it's come all the way around, and it is awesome. But you might be interested in a little bit of that middle part of the passage. When I was in the trough of step four, I am garbage, several key contributions came from people inside and outside of the church history department. In storytelling, when the way forward seems blocked or unclear, then there's some new revelation or nugget of truth that comes along and changes everything and puts the story back on track. And for saints, this history, there have been a few of those key moments, key pieces of insight or revelation. One of them came from James Goldberg, who is a writer, a terrifically creative mind uh... in the church history department he and others read the first draft of volume four and uh, the recommendations they made at that point led to the way that the volumes ended up being structured and written which is quite different from the way we were doing the first drafts and they also led to the recruiting of the perfect people to do the editing and the writing of the books and it was at that point that we got back to this might be okay I want to introduce you to some of these people. This is Jed Woodworth, who's with us here today, I think. Jed, are you here somewhere? Right over here? Uh, he is the historical review editor. Uh, Jed has a Wisconsin University of Wisconsin PhD. He reads and reviews everything related to the project. He's the historical architect of Volume 3, which is a very difficult volume to write because we know the least about that period of any other than church history in my opinion Jed is likely the most knowledgeable historian of Mormonism alive and he's a historian of a lot else besides Mormonism too his capacious mind is awesome to me and besides that he's a delightful scholar and a person and I asked him how he would like to be talked about when I was doing this uh, a while back, and he said, I would like to be called a delightful scholar and person. So. Also the uh, cover there of a book he and other, others put together. This is Scott Hales. Scott's sitting by Jed, right? Right over here? You heard from Scott the other day. He is the literary editor of Saints and a general editor. He's got a PhD in English from the University of Cincinnati. He's the author of The Garden of Enid, which is out on the table out here. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Uh, he's the literary architect of the whole project, of all the four volumes. And by that, I mean that, uh, that there's a structure to storytelling. And this is one of the things that the historians were missing. Historians write like B.H. Roberts wrote in a straight line maybe with some digressions from time to time Um, and you're not going to keep a whole lot of the rising generation interested in a book that's written like that it has to be written like a roller coaster ride and that's the structure that Scott has brought to the project it maps fantastically well onto history as it was actually experienced by the people going forward and that was a wonderful insight uh, that he brought to us and has um, made sure that it's present on every page. It's his voice that you hear when you read. He's ventriloquistic, and, um, and that, that's not quite the right word. He's, uh, he's, he, he's got voices in his head, right? If, <laughs> if, if you read his Garden of Enid, you'll see what I mean. Unbelievably talented. So I asked Scott how he wanted to be talked about and so on. And he said, you could channel your inner W.W. Phelps and give us names, as Phelps did, to early Latter-day Saints like the Lion of the Lord or the Archer of Paradise. I asked him if Enid might have anything to say before our presentation by way of introducing the team and or the process. And he said, I'd have to ask her. He wasn't talking to her very much anymore. (laughs) All right, Dallin. I don't think Dallin's here today. Dallin's actually at the shop at work, I think. Or he might be on campus. Am I wrong, Dallin? Are you here? He was here earlier in the week, but I don't think he's here today. He's a, a a doctor of the law by education, a repentant lawyer, however. Sorry, Jack. Um, A Russian language expert and literature expert. He's an exceptionally good historical researcher, and he's a great team player. He's invaluable to the whole process. He said, who gets to be the Lion of the Library? And I asked him if he was applying for that position. He said, I was thinking I could be the rough writer of research, to which Scott said Jed would have to be the lion of the library and Steve would be the pillar of light, which I thought was nice. <laughs> Angela Hallstrom is a literary editor of volume four and a wonderful contribution to the team. She's a writer, reader, editor, She's the mother of four. She lives in Minnesota. I even use my... Uh, Canadian missionary accent there did you get that just a little bit that was completely natural (laughs) she has an MFA in creative writing and she taught English at a variety of different levels she's a novelist an award-winning novelist and editor also and she said obviously I'm the lady of the lakes or the sister of the sweatpants (laughs) either way She knew that would particularly get under our skin since we have to show up at the library with a tie on. And she, if she chooses, can go to work in her sweatpants. So she thought that would appeal to us. Dave Nielsen um, now works for the Family History Department of the Church, is a University of Cincinnati PhD in poetry, a college basketball player, award winning poet, a writer on volumes 2 and 4, And uh, Jed said I've always thought of Dave as Brahmin Atman Might have to get Jed to pronounce that for us Dave said I don't know who or what that is But if it can be turned into an action figure That would be awesome (laughs) Scott said Dave would be the bard of Deseret Dave said as long as it can be turned into an action figure That's all I ask (laughs) Dallin said the paladin of poetry You could definitely make that uh, An action figure out of that and Melissa, who was hard at work this whole time that the rest of us were dinking around, was uh, weighed in to say, an action figure with inky fingers. And that won't make any sense until you meet Melissa. Melissa Leilani Larson, who has a MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Iowa, a very prestigious writing school. She's an award-winning playwright and screenwriter. She's a writer on Volumes 1 and 3. She's a connoisseur and collector of fountain pens, and hence her sole request that her action figure have inky fingers. That's all that mattered to her. So ongoing conversation here. I said, Jed's delightful scholar and person is sounding comparatively lame after all these ones. Angela said, I enjoy the and person part, as it leads one to believe that not all scholars are actually people. Scott said, if pillar of light does not work for Steve, we could call him the manager of light and truth, which, like I was on a high when he said, you know, pillar of light, and then the manager, that just really brought me down, back to earth. To be more serious about this really important project, I show you the statement that is in the front of volume one from the first presidency of the church, and, um... I'll just let you read that. Maybe you can't see it. I'll read it to you in case you can't see it. It says, Throughout the scriptures, the Lord asks us to remember. Remembering the Savior and our shared legacy of faith, devotion, and perseverance gives us perspective and strength as we face challenges today. It is with this desire to remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men that we present Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. We encourage all to read the book and make use of the supplementary materials online. We love you. You are an important part of the great history of this Church. We thank you for all you do to build on the foundation of faith laid by our forebears. We testify that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is the standard of truth today. The Lord called Joseph Smith to be his prophet seer and revelator in the latter days, and he continues to call living prophets and apostles to guide his church. We pray that this volume will enlarge your understanding of the past, strengthen your faith, and help you make and keep the covenants that lead to exaltation. Sincerely, the First Presidency. Elder Cook spoke at BYU-Idaho uh, several weeks ago on this project and uh, described it in, in great detail, and um, he also will publish an article about it in the September Enzyme that includes these words. Saints is the story of how God restored his everlasting covenant because of his love for his children. It shows how the Lord restored his gospel, gospel to provide hope and peace in times of tumult, trial, and suffering. It also shows how restored covenants lead to exaltation through Jesus Christ. The story begins, Elder Cook continues, in 1815 with the explosion of an Indonesian volcano which caused widespread death, disease, and disruption. This beginning point was chosen in light of what the Savior revealed about how he restored covenants that bind us to him and enable us to eventually overcome all of life's problems. I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments, that mine everlasting covenant might be established. Elder Cook continues, Saints is the true Latter-day story of God restoring covenants with his children, because he knows their hardships, pain, and suffering. The gospel, our loving Heavenly Father restored through his prophet, does not eliminate evil sorrow suffering and separation at death but sanctifies and endows our lives with transcendent meaning promises healing through the Savior's atonement and assures us that the relationships we cherish on earth can endure in eternity coupled with eternal glory oh I should have showed you those quotes sorry read fast (laughs) This is Elder Snow's article from the February Enzyme, uh, where he announced to the church, the whole world, that saints would be forthcoming. Sometimes if you want to hide something from the saints, you publish it in the Enzyme. Uh, But there it is. He said some really great stuff, including starting with this quote from Brigham Young, In 1861, President Brigham Young urged church historians to change their approach. Write in a narrative style, he advised, and write only about one-tenth part as much. So Saints follows the teaching, the direction of Brigham Young to the church's historians. You might not think it's only a tenth part as much, but we could do ten times more. Uh, And you'll find the volumes clip along at a terrific pace. If you'll start reading them, you won't get worried about them being too thick or too too much. This is what um, chapter one looks like online at saints.lds.org. You can scroll down the page and get to the text. This is what chapter two looked like when it was published in the Liahona and the Enzyme. It's published in forty eight languages to well over 98% of Latter-day Saints across the globe. What makes it different? Five different things I'm going to talk briefly about. One is, it's a small plates history. It doesn't try to be the comprehensive history of everything that ever happened in the church. It's just a representative uh, set of stories that form one big story about saints, or in other words, natural men and women who are striving to become saints through the atonement of Jesus Christ. We pick characters based on what they can do to help readers experience God's sacred work, how inherently interesting they are, and uh, how they help us tell the story of change over time in the church. The method is different from any of the histories we've done before. Uh, We're very interested in having accurate history, but also in having fantastic literature and hitting the right audience, the scripturally mandated audience of the rising generations. And so we're worried about all three of those things, and the sweet spot where those concerns overlap is where we want saints to land, and we think we've largely accomplished that. This is the narrative arc of Volume 1, simply put. It's different because it's not a straight line, right? It's not linear expository writing like the other histories we've done are. It's story. It's a true story of the past written in a narrative style for the rising generation as the Lord commanded and his prophets directed The result is a happy marriage between accurate history and narrative storytelling. The dramatic tension rises as pressure on the characters increases. And under pressure, the characters make choices, sometimes good ones and sometimes bad ones, but always resulting in consequences. The theme of the story is King Benjamin's teaching that the natural man's an enemy to God and has been from the fall and will be forever. Unless he yields the enticings of the Holy Spirit, puts off the natural man, becomes a saint through the Savior's atonement. The story corresponds to that theme. The characters, for example, beginning with Joseph Smith and his family, are flawed because the natural man is an enemy to God. That's true history, true doctrine, uh, good writing. The story is not about perfect people. It's about fallen people who are trying to become saints, This makes the story about the sacred drama of the plan of salvation. And it also means that though it's a story of only a few Latter-day Saints who need redemption through Christ, all Latter-day Saints who need redemption through Christ can find it compelling, sacred, and analogous to our own quest to become saints. The characters will remain enemies to God unless they choose to yield to the enticings of the Spirit and apply the Savior's atoning power. So the story depends on the choices that they make. And the choices the characters make create the drama and suspense that's inherent both in history and in great storytelling. The story sets up this way. It's global and universal. It concerns all people everywhere throughout time and space. But it begins in 1815 when the cataclysmic eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia causes death and disease and disruption, as Elder Cook put it. People everywhere ask why. And God doesn't answer directly, but readers get a glimpse into his mind and the wonder of his ways when they learn what happened because of what the Lord foreknew. That is, because he knew. Before knew the calamities coming, he prepared provincial young Joseph Smith to restore the broken covenants that solve the problems of death and disease and disrupted relationships. Excuse me. An insightful non-Latter-day Saint scholar, Douglas Davies, claimed that the power of Mormonism is the story it gives people for the conquest of death, which I like a lot. I like that insight a lot. Um, In other words, we don't just have a doctrine of resurrection or salvation or power over death, we have a doctrine of exaltation, as we put it, power over the havoc that sin and death wreak on our relationships. So from the outset, the story signals to readers how massive and universal the problems of sin and death are, and hints that the hero's quest will be finding a solution to those problems. The catalyst of the story. Like many others, Joseph is afflicted with, by disease and disruption, and like many others, he wonders if his sins have displeased God, and he seeks to be reconciled to God, lest he be damned at death. He's frustrated until he discovers a new way to read an old verse, and he goes to the woods to ask God for wisdom. The answer to his prayer launches a quest that will transform him from an obscure boy into a foreordained prophet seer, and unrivaled revelator, with power from God to seal covenants that are stronger than death. The midpoint of the story, the saints have always been opposed, but up to this point the story is one of the Spirit of God burning like a fire, angels coming to visit the earth, covenants restored, priesthood keys committed, and saints endowed with divine power in their commission to take the gospel to all mankind in their quest to overcome the effects of death. This flood of light and power culminates in a revelation in the saints' new temple in Kirtland that assures Joseph that his brother's salvation and the salvation of all people everywhere will not be determined by the timing of their deaths, but by their godly desires. But then halfway through volume one, the story takes a negative turn. The saints begin to fight among themselves. Their covetousness is exposed. Their bank fails. Joseph is opposed by former friends and fellow servants, The saints are forced to flee from their temple in Kirtland, Ohio, and it goes from bad to worse. An Abrahamic test requires the saints to partake of the unthinkable, plural marriage. Moreover, tired of being mistreated, they go against the state of Missouri in a war of extermination. The governor and the settlers respond brutally, stealing property, murdering men and boys, and raping women. Joseph and others are jailed without due process and with no hope for justice. He's stuck helplessly in a dungeon while his family and other saints flee in winter. And it's there that he gets the nugget of truth, the revelation that brings the story full circle. All these things give experience, and if you endure them well, God will exalt you on high. There's a false defeat toward the end of the story. Joseph escapes. The apostles undertake the global gathering of Israel. The saints begin again in Nauvoo. A temple rises there from a hill overlooking the Mississippi River. But before the saints can receive the ordinances of exaltation in the temple, Joseph is brutally murdered by a mob. The resolution to the plot. Joseph is not killed before he receives God's promise of eternal life nor before he endows and seals most of the apostles, giving them the ordinances of exaltation. Weeks before his death, Joseph gathers them. He confirms on them all the priesthood keys he has received and commissions them to carry on the work of the temple. After Joseph's death, Brigham Young leads the apostles and the saints. He seeks and receives a revelation to finish the temple, and there he gives thousands of saints the ordinances of exaltation. The problem of death posed by Mount Tambora is juxtaposed with the conquest of death available in the mountain of the Lord's house. Saints suffer from death and disease and the dissolution of their cherished relationships, but the restored covenants make that suffering purposeful and temporary and exalting. It helps them become saints as they learn that all these things will give them experience and work for their good while the Savior defeats death and disease and restores relationships through the ordinances of the temple. So you can see how nicely church history maps onto a terrific narrative arc. Conflict, characters, choices, consequences, forces of antagonism, the great commission to take the gospel to everyone, the determined effort to redeem the dead, the quest to make and keep the covenants that lead to eternal life. These are great materials of history, out of which to tell a wonderful story. I've used a little bit of theological and literary jargon in explaining to you the narrative arc of Volume 1, but the book itself and the subsequent volumes are written in fast-paced and accessible prose. They do lots of theological and literary work that I've described without telling anyone that they're doing it. They're not children's books, but youth will be able to read and understand them. And over the course of the next generation, the new knowledge and insight gained from every page will become the common knowledge of all Latter-day Saints everywhere, and we will be less vulnerable to our enemies than we are today. I'm really excited about that. Another thing that's unique about saints that's not typical of the histories we've done before is that it is intentionally designed to immunize the rising generations of Latter-day Saints. Elder Ballard told all church um, educators a couple of years ago, Seminary and Institute teachers, you should be among the first outside your students' families to introduce authoritative sources on topics that may be less well-known or controversial so your students will measure whatever they hear or read later against what you have already taught them. He said, you know we give medical inoculations to our precious missionaries before sending them into the mission field, so they will be protected against diseases that can harm or even kill them. In a similar fashion, please, before you send them into the world, inoculate your students by providing faithful, thoughtful, and accurate interpretation of gospel doctrine. The scriptures, our history, and those topics that sometimes are misunderstood. The manual I used to teach church history from, uh, Church History in the Fullness of Times, is a flat exposition that purposefully avoids or downplays controversy. This is a roller coaster ride where the controversy in history is harnessed to the dramatic tension you need in narrative so we welcome uh, the tricky parts of church history and they're all there you don't expect us to stop and dissertate about seer stones um, or whatever else but it's all there in the narrative and for those who want more there are all kinds of resources available online that we're going to link them to so it works like this uh, we, the, the top level is the books the, are the books themselves, the story, the narrative history. They have footnotes, hundreds and hundreds of footnotes in each one, and these footnotes link people not only to the real to the primary and secondary sources we use, but to topics, topical essays and videos that go into more detail about all kinds of subjects, including the most controversial ones. And these go even further to link people to uh, other resources that are available on the web. The thing I'm most excited about is that for many of the sources, most of the sources, you can uh, link to them yourself within a few clicks in the electronic versions of, of Saints. And it'll be electronic as soon as it's available in print. This is what some of those pages look like. This is the topical essay on the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, for example. The goal is to provide everyone as much access as they could possibly want or need. So those of us who get to work in the Church History Library, we sit on top of this spectacular archive of of historical materials, uh, and we really relish the opportunity we have to use them. Our goal is to make it so everybody can have access to all of the things that can be known from that material and uh, spread it as widely as possible. Again, the primary sources will be available within a couple of clicks. Here's an electronic um, chapter, uh, chapter 4, I think, and you can see the footnotes on the sidebar there, and you click on the electronic, um, the links in those footnotes that will lead you right to Joseph Knight's reminiscence. One of the things that's going to delight readers when they read this is to learn that Joseph Smith was taught by Moroni that he needed to have the right person supporting him before he could be able to handle the responsibility of the Book of Mormon plates. And initially, Joseph thought that was Alvin, and when Alvin died, he was puzzled. And he learns that it's Emma in the end, ultimately. How do we know that? From Joseph Knight's autobiography and... Thousands and thousands, maybe millions of Latter-day Saints are going to say, I've never heard that before. Where did they get that? And I hope they'll go click, 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 and then have Joseph Knight's autobiography right in front of their face to show them where that came from. Is that not exciting? And I get an amen. Why didn't the church ever tell me that, right? I am getting so tired of that. I think the church is, too, because the church is going to tell them all that. Uh, It's already, uh, as you know, gone to massive effort uh, to publish the prophet's papers and to be increasingly transparent in other ways. Uh, The burden ultimately rests with people to find out for themselves, right, to seek for themselves. And a lot of what we blame on the church not telling me that is me not being active enough To go out and find the information myself, and this is going to help uh, make that easier to do, and it's going to it's going to make it less easy or valid to make that excuse that we've sometimes made. All right, Saints is about the global church, and it is for the global church. These are images from some of the stories that will be included. won't go into detail about them, but this is the most exciting slide that I have to show you. This is sacred to me. Isn't that great? Before I ever knew anything about this, the um, first presidency—before I went to work on it full time, I should say—the first presidency approved a budget an appropriation. In other words, they set aside every penny it would take to get the job done. They didn't say we'll probably provide you some maybe if you need it. They said here it is, and it was a lot of money. Now, we think it's that important get it done. That that included enough we thought to publish it in the 10 languages that were then Uh, being used on the church's internet sites, that is the internet 10 languages, languages that any of the church correlated materials would get published in on the internet. Sorry to be inelegant in saying that. Between then and now, that number of languages has grown to 14. And so that amount of money needed to do that has grown a lot since the day the First Presidency made that appropriation. They didn't even bat an eye. Whatever you need to get this to every Latter-day Saint and every child of God on the planet, we, we will get it done, is essentially the message that they've sent to us and to all of God's children on the face of the earth. This is so important to me. Um, along the way, we thought, we just can't, we, we just aren't capable of getting this done and into all these languages simultaneously. So, we'll do it in English. We'll try to get it done by the time Elder Snow wants it done. Um, and then we'll publish it a few years. You know, it'll take us a few years to get it published in the other languages. And the prophets have come back and, in their wonderful way, said, That's not what we're doing here. We're going to publish that on day one in all the languages. We're going to send the message to every child of God on the planet that this is their story, it's for them. It's about them. It's their story. They belong in it. They own it. And I'm deeply um, gratified by that leadership that we have from our prophets, their commitment to this project and everything else like it, and the testimony it bears about our Heavenly Father's love for His children. So I'm very excited about this slide. It will be released a year earlier Uh, at least Volume 1 will, then Elder Snow asked for it, and simultaneously in languages spoken by more than 90% of the Latter-day Saints on the earth. And those chapters that are being serialized, the first eight chapters in Volume 1, as I mentioned earlier, those several of those will be published in 48 languages, getting them to more than 98% of the Latter-day Saints in the world. So you can see from its opening scene to its worldwide distribution, that volume one, the blue, shows who will be reached. That's how much of the planet will be reached by the print volumes. That's how much will be reached by the chapters serialized in the church magazines. From its opening scene to its worldwide distribution, volume one signals to God's children everywhere that it's for them and it's about them. It's their story. It's the story of how they relate to a God who, knowing the calamities of their lives, called a teenager to renew the covenants that don't eliminate sorrow and suffering and separation at death, but do sanctify and endow each of those obstacles with transcendent meaning and guarantee that the same sociality that exists among us here will exist among us there, only coupled with eternal glory. Some landmarks along the way. I'm not too excited about these earlier ones that have already been done, but the later ones are are worth uh, your attention. You can see that earlier this year we started publishing chapters in the church magazines. Uh, Advanced copies have gone out, or soon will, to all the seminary and institute teachers across the church. I'm very excited for them to get it into their hands. I've talked to lots of them, and they're excited for it to get into their hands. And if there are any that aren't, it won't matter because their students are going to read it and they're going to know it better than their teachers if the teachers don't read it. And it will, it will gain the momentum uh, that it deserves and needs, whether everybody likes it or not. Volume 1 will launch on September 4th. It will be in print, ebook, audiobook. audio book. You can have a female or a male narrator, whichever you choose. You can hear those first six chapters right now in your Gospel Library app or at saints.lds.org. There will be an event at the Museum of Church History in Salt Lake City on September 4th. And then a few days later, Elder Cook and Matthew Grow, the Director of Publications in the Church History Department, and Kate Holbrook, the head of the Women's, Mormon Women's History Initiative, will do a face-to-face event from Nauvoo on September 7th, all about saints. It'll be available in all the channels you could hope for. And finally, you can see where the titles, the subtitles of the volumes came from. Joseph Smith's wonderful prophecy in his 1842 letter, The Standard of Truth Has Been Erected. The blue print is the um, subtitles for the four volumes. Volume 2, no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecution may rage, mobs may combine. Armies may assemble and calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth. Volume 3, boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country. And Volume 4, sounded in every ear until the purposes of God should be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. Isn't that just right? It's as if he said that for us. Thanks very much for your time and attention. I um, am grateful to be a witness to this way of the Lord hastening his work in its time. And if you have a minute or two worth of questions, I'll be glad to try to address them. Are there any controversial topics you will avoid, such as temple rites versus masonry, uh, polyandry, Adam God teaching? The answer is no. Um, Not sure yet what we're going to do with anything with Adam God, but if we don't put that in there explicitly, it won't be because we're avoiding it. It will be because it doesn't otherwise fit the narrative arc, and we will find a way to address it. We'll find ways to get the saints the resources they need. But that other stuff specifically mentioned... It's right there, right now. It's already in the book. It's too late now. <laughs> what are we to make of Brigham Young announcement on blacks and priesthood? We'll talk, we, we talk about that in volume two. We situate it in 1852 um, when Brigham Young started making public uh, statements on race and priesthood. Well, that's just part of the story. Let's tell that as it happened. What was the thinking behind leaving out Joseph Smith's report of the first vision, criticizing ministers and creeds of his day? That's a great question. That was probably maybe I'm taking too much credit here, but that's, uh, I. This is a subject of personal interest to me, and I think that that particular passage is, um, but that passage of Joseph Smith's history where. He quotes the Savior saying, all their creeds are abomination, their professors are corrupt. Um, That is shaped by a persecuted present. And so it's a mixture of his past and present. I'm not calling the the, um, event into question, but I'm saying that we chose to use um, memories that he had that were softer. Um, We're writing a past for the present. It's not a real great idea right now to... You know, throw grenades into the room when we're trying to, to make good relationships. So we're not hiding it. It's right there in the Pearl of Great Price. But we'll tell that story using um, other words. Um, the, for example, the Wentworth letter says the Lord told Joseph they're believing in incorrect doctrines. None of the churches is true. They're believing in incorrect doctrines. So same message, a little different words is saints the antidote to work in glory it's not opposed to work in glory yeah. so what you can learn from the work in the glory is that brother Lund is a s- storyteller an excellent one and he's as a teacher and he has things he wants to teach and he doesn't uh, pedantically or dog uh, dogmatically or didactically come out and say here's what I'm going to teach you. I'm going to lecture you instead he puts them in a story and you read the story and you don't maybe realize that when you're done with that story you learned the stuff he wanted you to learn that's what we can learn from work and glory what we don't do is fictionalize anything there's no made-up characters there's no made-up lines of dialogue there's no made-up setting so it's not like work and glory in that respect but we hope that it is a powerful teacher in the way that Brother Lund's works are. No offense, but most books written by committee are boring and dry. Amen? <laughs> I was surprised by how engaging of a read it is, at least the first five chapters. It ends with a cliffhanger. See, now we've, Scott will be of no use for the rest of the month. His head will be so big. <laughs> to be serious, though, the reason it sounds great is because uh, Scott's on that committee and, and it goes through him and he's the one that gives it that voice. So thank him because it doesn't sound like every other thing that we've done in that way. The project is, in the, is the Lord's. Will you tell us about a time when you saw his hand in it? I thought two or three times today as I talked about maybe being more explicit about that. His hand is in it. I testify of that. Uh, One of the ways you see that is that, like Esther, there's a handful of people who have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, They were prepared. They were right on time. And the Lord led us to them when he needed them and got them where he needed them. And that's one of the ways you can see his hand working in it. I know that he likes the subtitles. Um, That's all I'll say about those parts, though. you are you done with me i'm over time probably pick one more who came up with the title saints i don't know if it was the lord or king benjamin <laughs> but it was one of them and the holy spirit made it clear that that's the That was the one. Thank you very much. God bless you.